My name is Joseph Wooten. I'm the keyboard player for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted Steve Miller Band. And I'm also one of the Wooten brothers from Nashville, Tennessee. And today we talked about social justice. We talked about giving context to young people. We talked about using music as a tool of change. We talked about uh, homeless veterans, veterans in general. We talked about the fact that everybody matters. We talked about uh, homeless people feeling invisible and how to remedy it. Stay tuned. It's going to be good. Welcome back to part three of our delicious conversation with Joseph Wooten. We're going to get back into that in a moment. Uh, this episode is brought to you in part by the awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the awesome Music Project campaign go to music and mental health research initiatives. Uh, you can find out more about the awesome Music Project uh, coffee table book and uh, all the usual places where books are found. The book features stories from amazing folks like uh, Canadian astronaut Chris Hatfield, award-winning artists like Michael Bublé, Sarah McLaughlin, and there's even this clown in there. I don't know why we got in there. What's his name? Uh, Doug? Doug? No, not Doug. Oh, Dove Barron. Yeah, he's got a story in there too. <laughs> it's about how music impacts lives and how we can use music for mental health. So it's really appropriate. Uh, we're here with part three of our great conversation with Joseph Wooten. He is a three-time Grammy-nominated artist. He is uh, with the Steve Miller Band. He also has his own band. He's a producer. He's a speaker. His own band is called uh, Joseph Wooten and the Hands of Soul. On top of that, he's the author of It All Matters. And you can find out more about that, actually, by going to it, uh, imatterumatter.com. And I want to come back into our conversation because, you know, at the root of it all uh, and everything that you're doing, music is your thing. It's where you started. Uh, yeah. You've been a performer, an artist. You're from a musical family. Um, so just give everybody a few, you know, like a minute or two on who you are musically, whether, you know, how you've grown up in music and how, you know, who you've been around and how that's influenced and impacted you. Okay, well, uh, before I was a musician, well, I started playing music at the age of five, right? Yeah, so before you were a musician, you were in kindergarten. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't in school yet before I was a musician. But um, uh, I think the thing that influences all of, all of the five Wooten brothers the most is the influence of our parents, and then we're musicians. Right. So. They were the ones that uh, told us that, uh, like my mother used to say that uh, when you look in the mirror in the morning, uh, you've seen the most important person you're going to meet that day, but you're no more important than anybody else. That's a, that's a good thing for a young person who's being told how good they are at a young age to know that we're not yeah. better than anybody else. Um, and that's parents, a lot better than the modern version, which is, you're wonderful, darling, you're special, and here's yeah. a little medal for waking up this morning. Yes, And yes. what it's really doing is it's doing that, but it's saying, hey, and the rest of the world gets one too. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my parents were, my parents were, uh, made sure that we had the tools to make it in a world that hadn't been so kind to them. Mm -hmm. You know, my, my dad was born in 1930, my mom was born in 1934. 
So you can imagine growing up in Jim Crow, mm -hmm. North Carolina. So by the time we were born in military bases all over the country, um, they were giving us the tools that young black kids born in the 50s and 60s needed to make it, that anybody needed, but it's, yeah. it's especially us growing up in yeah. the situation we were in. So when we started playing music, we applied our music to that. Like as we started being told how good we were, my mom, every now and then she'd check in with us and she would go like, like, what are you doing? And uh, well, I'm, I'm doing 250 push-ups a day. I'm like running three miles a day. I'm practicing five hours a day. And she'd listen and she'd go, that's good. She said, but what does that have to do with me? Man, what does that have to do with me? And uh, which was her way of saying that that's good what you're doing, but how does it, how is that helping the world? How is that making the world right. better? She wasn't saying me personally. She was saying everything outside of you, yourself, yeah, what, your ego. What does that yeah. have to do with anybody else besides you? I'm happy for what you're doing for yourself, but there's a whole world out there. And, um, you know, my dad made sure that we were, that we were safe, uh, that we were realists, because my mom never liked guns. So my dad never had them around, but I'm sure I'm sure he probably had one in a special suitcase when his children were on stage playing in nightclubs, right? <laughs> My dad would stand on the side of the stage and make sure that we were safe. But I mean, we were literally, when, when Victor was five, we opened for war. Like Victor was five, I was eight. The older three brothers were 11, 12, 13. We opened for war. Two years later, we opened for Curtis Mayfield. So my parents, my dad, my mom didn't like guns, but my dad needed to make sure his children were safe. So my dad went to work every day. And even though that didn't seem like a lot when we were kids, his work ethic, I find out as I'm, as I'm a dad now, yes, was impeccable and a big part of who I am because yeah. it didn't dawn on me until I was a father. My son was, my younger son was a state champion in track. And I would, you know, taking him back and forth to track practice, track meets. And it dawned on me that my dad, my mom and dad, they would work five days of the week and then they would come home to what should be their weekend. Yes. Dad would come home from work and uh, immediately go get the trailer, hook it to the back and hook it to the back of the station wagon. And uh, you know, he'd help us load gear. He'd get a quick shower and he'd go straight from his, from his job and drive us to the gig. And we play from, we may be driving hour, two hours, three hours, whatever it was. We play from 10 o'clock to two o'clock in the morning. And then he'd drive us back. Saturday, there was another gig, sometimes Sunday. And then he'd go back. Wow. And he did that. My parents did that for, you know, they did that for 15, 20 years, you know? Oh, my Until God. We were, you know, we, we were old enough to, to start moving out on our own. But along the way. At that point, your dad's like, you're 12. I'm going to buy you a car. I just, need a, I just need to lie in, man. You're 12. You look a little older. I'm going to stick a, I'm going to stick a false mustache on you. Just drive yourself, for God's sake. I think, I think the beauty of the Wooten Brothers is the fact that our parents were so encouraging of what we yes. did. And they let us nurture it yeah. because they knew that we were doing something special. My mom would make sure that our heads were in the right place. She would make sure, like she would, someone, my mom came to see us as adults and we were playing somewhere 
and they were saying, Mrs. Wooten, four of us were playing. Rudy wasn't with us. Right. And uh, somebody said, Mrs. Wooten, you, you must be so proud. All four of your sons are so, so talented. She said, first of all, I want to let you know, I have five sons and they're <laughs> equally as talented. She says, but that doesn't, that's not what makes me proud. Said they've been doing it their whole lives. By now they ought to be good at it. <laughs> she says, but if, if you come up and tell me that they've inspired you in some kind of way, or they've helped you or you look up to them. She says, that makes me proud because that's what I worked on. I said, yeah. any, anybody who, she said, she would say anybody who's done something their whole life is gonna be good at it, you know, when they're an adult and that's what they've done. And, uh, and that's, so when you're asking who, who the Wooten brothers are, who I am, that's who I am. I'm a musician that wants to make things better um, with my music. Um, people that teach you things you can only teach effectively if you're a good example so yes. my mom my dad they were both great examples we didn't my mom said you don't have to worry about what words you can say and what words you can't say if you haven't heard me say it don't you say it right she's an example we didn't have to worry about is this a curse word or not right we didn't hear yeah and Has um, mother ever said that Nope. Okay. I guess that's all. <laughs> yeah, that's it. If you, you hadn't heard me say it. So that's, I'm, I'm a musician that wants to make the world better with music. And we've seen in, we've seen our whole lives, how music brings people together. Mm -hmm. And we've seen in our whole lives, how music inspires people. And we've seen how it's such a great tool, how it's such a great tool of, uh, of having people internalize concepts that you wouldn't be necessarily be able to talk to them about. Right. Um, they can sing about it, you know. Uh, How can it be more so that a man with ammunition in the back of his torso can be seen as a criminal? It must be something dark and subliminal that from behind you pull the trigger and a man with bullets in his spine is seen as a... <laughs> Wow. You can never blame a man with bullets in his back, right? I can sing about it and get you to internalize it better than I can talk to you about it. Because while you're feeling the song, you're not, you're not feeling it and then going, well, he was convicted of, he was, and he was yeah. convicted, and he was convicted of. Not while you're feeling the song. No. And that's, that's, it's a tool. It's not the end, it's not, the solution necessarily, but it's an effective tool. Well, it, to it's, it's, a, it's a psychological lubricant. It opens <laughs> people up. It makes it right. It's a psychological lubricant. It, it takes that hard edge off and just, right. uh, it, it creates a conversation. And, and, you know, and you also uh, know that you also know that I'm doing, I'm singing this song for you. Right? Yes. I'm singing this song for you. I'm not screaming at you. I'm singing this song for you. The subject is a little bit harsh. We'll get to that in a minute. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? If we get to it in a minute, but for now, we're just going to like, I'm going to share this thing with you and we're going to feel some soul yeah. with this subject, as opposed yeah. to, I'm going to make you wrong. <laughs> I'm right because I got historical context. I've read all the articles. Yeah. I know exactly what, <clears throat> and well, as I said before, I think that music has been a, a, such a powerful force in all of our lives, whether we realize it or not. 
Um, you know, some people see history and look back and say 68, summer of love. Other people see it as, hold on a second, that was the year Martin Luther King was shot. Um, that was civil rights. Well, depends on which side of the country you were on, depends on which context you were receiving at the time. Right. And, and so this is where I, I, one of the things that before I go, I really want to get into the song you created and, and the whole movement you've done. But I want people to have a, a grasp of this because you were, you know, I talked to, uh, to Victor about how you guys were on tour very young, you know, as you said, war status, uh, war, Curtis Mayfield, all those amazing musicians. And, and, you know, you were on the brink of fame multiple times and right. all those things. Um, but this was at a time when not like it's all right now, but when, when, you know, racism was really very high, did you, were you playing for black audiences or did you find that you were playing for uh, different cultures? And did you face as a, as a family, as musicians, and even as an individual musically, not talking about in the streets, but musically, mm -hmm. did you face racism in that world too? I'm sure that we did. Um, I'm sure that we did, but we were fortunate enough that when we started playing, like most most musicians that are good young, they get, because they're in the company of adults at a young age, they get faced with the harshness of life at an early age. Like um, mm -hmm. uh, Neil Sean, uh, the Steve Miller band was uh, doing a co-headlining with Journey. And Neil Sean was talking about when he was 15 years old and he was in Santana. Well, I mean, you see Neil, he's 15 years old. You know, he's got the handlebar mustache and a giant afro. And he's, you know, in the band with these people who have adult habits. Right? They have the habits <laughs> yeah. of adult musicians as a 15-year-old. So he got introduced into a, like a drug world mm -hmm. and like a, a whole decadent world at the age of 15. We were different in mm -hmm. that we had each other. Yes. Uh, Reggie was our babysitter when Victor and I were children. Reggie's the oldest. Yep. Victor and I are the, are the two youngest. Victor's are three years younger than me. Uh, Rudy, Roy, and Reggie were three, four, and five years older. So Reggie was our babysitter when our parents weren't home. And every gig that we went to, our parents were there. So we didn't, that part of it stayed away from us. We were playing to black audiences, yeah. Mm. We were playing the black audiences, but when we got to school and we started playing music in uh, middle school and, and high school, then we were playing in more mixed audiences. It's very interesting, the elementary schooling, the schooling uh, from Reggie, Roy, and Rudy, my brothers, how they tell it is much different than what Victor and I went through. Yes. Because we, Victor and I came out on the other side of busing, right? So... All I ever went to school was was integrated schools and the kids mm -hmm. thought I was funny, the kids thought I was talented. I had a lot of love from my uh, classmates, but sure. when we moved to Virginia in 1972, mm -hmm. I went to school Hilton Elementary. The school said Hilton, 1919, that's all it said. Right. And it looked like, I heard there was rumors that the school was a prison. It was on the banks of the James River in Virginia. And um, there was a principal there 
And immediately when I got there, this principal just started singling me out, giving me a hard time. And I didn't get it, but my mother did. Mm. She's an old, she's probably, looking back, she's probably about 70 years old, which meant she was probably born around the turn of the century, grew up mm -hmm. in the 20s, you know yep. what I mean? Yep. And uh, she was just constantly getting on my case about talking too loud. And I'm in a in a cafeteria with kindergartners through sixth graders, right? Of course it's loud. Certainly I'm not the one making this cafeteria loud. So I've always been one to like, don't tell me what to do, right? So we we go back and forth and she tries to grab my arm and I'm, now we're yelling at each other. I'm slinging my arm away and it's like a near fight. I'm gonna call your mother and she's shaking. And I was like, I'll call her for you. And I was like, I was gonna beat her to the office. And she made me go back to class. And two things I remember, I remember going back to class and the students were looking out to see what was going, what had happened to me. And I come back, students start applauding, right? Cause no, these little black kids hadn't seen that happen before. Mm. And my mom came and straightened it all out. My mom mm -hmm. came and said, I know exactly what's going on here. And I'm telling you now, said, you're trying to suspend him. I said, I'm going to take him home today cause he's mad and you're mad too. She says, but tomorrow he's going to be back in school. And if I hear of anything like this again, I'm not coming to you. I'm going over your head and we're going to keep going up until this doesn't happen again. So that's the long version of saying my parents kept that part of music away from us as long as we uh, as long as we were playing music and they were around. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, you're doing this work now and you're using music as a as a tool for bringing people together. But it's interesting that your mother sort of kept you away from the political side of life uh, and, and, you know, taught you this really great, solid moral code. And your dad gave the you other, the work this ethic. This is the other part of it, though. This is the other part of it. Now, my dad would talked about being in the Korean War. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they'd have a battle and the, and the, the commanding officers giving out awards, accolades, whatever they do after a successful battle. And he would say out loud to the black soldiers, you know, you're not getting one, you know, you're not getting it. And he would let them know in no terms, no uncertain terms, you're not getting it just because you're black. And this is the same time that the government is, the government's giving out mortgages to everybody except black people, Sure, right? So that's just the times they live in. So my dad, they made sure that we knew the world that we were in. Yes. They were buffering it up from us, but they made sure that we knew it. We saw our, we were coming home from a gig, uh, just come over the James River Bridge, coming from a gig in North Carolina. It's a station wagon pulling a trailer full of musical gear. All five boys, my mother, my dad's mother, my dad, we're driving, police car, pulls us over. Young officer comes out, got his revolver to my dad's head. His hands are shaking. You know, and he's accusing my dad of trying to outrun him. And unfortunately, his partner was able to calm him down. But we almost saw our dad get his head blown off, right? We're just coming home from the gig. How are we going to mm. outrun a police officer? We're we got eight people in a station wagon pulling a trailer full of gear, right? And of course, by the time it goes to traffic court, nothing ever happens to the police officer. So no. what I, I tell my white friends, that sticks with you and lets you know the world that you're in. And that's what we're trying, that's what we're trying to fix. And we all knew that we could cut through it with music. 
we could cut through it with music. And you're using music now as that. This, hence the T-shirt. For those of you who are not seeing mm -hmm. it, the T-shirt says, I matter. Talk to us about this movement. Talk to us about the, the song and, and what you've done. Okay, well, the T-shirt says, I matter. On the back, it says, in the same manner, you matter. You matter. I matter. Yes, you sir. matter. So, I matter, you matter. Uh, is the name of the is the name of the charity it started because i was i was watching a movie one day called freedom freedom writers like you write mm -hmm. yep and uh i'm inspired by that movie and uh at the time i was my ex-wife had a chihuahua i was letting the chihuahua out and all of a sudden i heard this song coming in my head i picked the chihuahua up ran inside and uh, I wrote this song called I Matter. And it was, I had all three verses, all the chords and like inside of 30 minutes, it just sort of poured in. Mm -hmm. So anytime, anytime you write something meaningful like that, you just sense that there's a purpose for it. So uh, not long after that, I get a call to, uh, to go to Buffalo, New York. And uh, the, the, school system up there was paying for me to come up and do uh, inspirational speaking to young students because there's a lot of a lot of underfunded uh, schools from uh, underfunded areas up there yes. in Buffalo. So I'd go up and I would talk and I wrote I wrote this song because in this particular movie I recognized that there were so many people from segments of society that sort of fall through the cracks yes and nobody so i wanted to write a song that was written for them like everybody writes a song about like the ncaa champion one shining moment the champion yeah. always gets the song yeah. so the my song starts out you know the song is for the one that's not the champion the yeah. one that has been trampled on maybe you don't have a home and your name is unknown you don't get enough publicity or you're not the right ethnicity. Maybe you don't know your mother, not as famous as your brother, not as famous as your brother, but this is what you got <laughs> to do. See that no one means more than you. Even if you're fed up, you've got to keep your head up and say, I am here. I am here and I matter. Right. And, yeah. uh, long as for the struggling single mother, the chemically addicted, the physically constricted, the wrongfully convicted, I can't say I know your pain. I won't say that I do. Behind even the darkest cloud, there's a sky that is blue and the sun shines too. The toughest pressure makes a diamond and that diamond is you. So even when you're down and out from the highest mountain, you shout, I am here, I am here, and I matter. And what I found out was the, the more impoverished the school was, the more impoverished the community was, the more they felt that song the more they felt that it could be a loud, a loud auditorium. And they would, they would always feel that song. And because for people going through something, there's something in that song that connects with people, somebody who's doesn't know who their parent or somebody whose parent is, is in jail for something they didn't do or somebody that just doesn't feel seen. And I wanted, I wanted somebody to know that somebody's thinking about them and that they're somebody as much as I am. And I, and I know that you probably know that you are, but it makes it better if you know that I know it. 
Can I tell you what my experience with the song was? Sure. So when I heard the song the first time, mm -hmm. um, and I listened to it, and then I listened to it back, and and I, I like I said, I love music, and so I'm I'm into it. Um, mm -hmm. But I have a, a a quote and a piece that I wrote, uh, and I even did a video about it ages ago, like probably several years ago, where mm -hmm. I talked about those who need the love the most are the ones who seem to deserve it the least. And, and we, we might even philosophically know that, but here's who else needs the love. Mm -hmm. The ones you think don't need it. The ones right. who you think get all the adoration and all the applause you need. And I asked, and in the video, I asked people to, to consider that, you know, what kills people in the 27 club? And I think you know what the 27 Club is. It's a bunch of famous people who, who like Amy Winehouse and, and you mm -hmm. know, actors mm -hmm. and singers and famous yeah, people, yeah. people who seem to have it all, who seem to right. pass away by whatever means at 27. Mm -hmm. And these are the people who are, have all the adoration, right? but they don't know they matter. Right. And, and when I listened to that song, I thought about all the people who everybody thinks the world knows they matter, but they don't know it. And it was interesting to me because I, as a kid, felt like I didn't matter. And I felt very invisible where I grew up in all the, in, because I was very different than my world. But I have, I have and have had many friends, friends who are very successful enormously financially successful i work with some of the most successful people in the world they are artists they are musicians they are athletes they are entertainers they are ceos they and oftentimes does it matter do i matter is there and so when i heard that song i matter you matter you know that's where it took me it took to me to yeah there are all these people we don't notice and they matter you know they're not the champions Right. But let's not forget right. that we assume, right. we assume the successful, the famous, the well-known know they matter. But if they do, why are they suiciding? No, if they do, why do they do their lives end? As we record this, Tony Shea, who was the CEO of Zappos. Yes was on a suicidal bent and died. Mm -hmm. This is a guy who wrote a book called Delivering Happiness, who, <laughs> who was the, the, the biggest influence on corporate culture probably in the last 50 years. Amazing guy, loved his book, loved his work, loved what he did. And what we find out from, from Jewel, who was his personal friend, the musician Jewel, is that uh -huh. he was incredibly lonely, an incredibly depressed individual, who didn't know he mattered, he, he paid people double their salary to come and live by him. This is I don't matter. And what I love about this song is you're saying to people, you do matter. Right. And that I was know. my experience of it. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it because you, well, you got, you got the essence of it. I mean, I just, I could just sense that there were so many people. Now I hadn't thought about, I, I gotta be honest. I wasn't thinking in terms of, of people who have it all, but you're right. Some of the saddest people I know are people that you think that have it all. 
but what I was what I was looking to do was to speak to people that don't feel that through their circumstances don't feel that yeah. they matter. And I I um I remember watching the Phil Donahue show years ago, and there was a now you're aging a, yourself, mate. Yeah, now that's I'll be <laughs> I'll be fifty nine on Tuesday. <laughs> that predates Oprah. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, yeah, it I does. remember Phil Donahue too. Bill Donahue. So he had, there was a guy who used to come on. He was a homeless advocate and uh, he, he had a home, but so that he would advocate for them with more authenticity, he would live on the streets with them. Used to wear the old green army jacket back when mm -hmm. army jackets weren't camouflaged. They were just green. Mm -hmm. And um, the thing that he said that stuck in my head, he said that, uh, that homeless people can get used to, they can get used to living on the street. Mm. But they never get used to people treating them like they're invisible. And wow. that, that is what sort of not, I always had a, had a place in my heart for homeless people or people that were, that were uh, unfortunate. But that thing about uh, the thing that they can never get over is being treated uh, like they're invisible to this day, if as long as a homeless person doesn't seem dangerous, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I love having conversations with homeless people because that's a gift. That's a gift that you can give them that, uh, that gives their life a little bit of sunlight. Mm -hmm. It gives their life a little bit of sunlight. I, I've met, I met a, I've met homeless people that spoke five languages. I wrote a guy, I met a guy that said uh, that he had written one of the top books on uh, Nigerian history. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he gave me his name. I go back, I go to Google and there he is. You know, this guy that I just met is talking to on the corner. I've met too many, too many homeless vets, too many homeless veterans and, and homelessness and veteran are two words that should never be in the same sentence, no. and, but too often it is. So um, from the song, I Matter, uh, came the speaking engagements with I Matter as the theme, came the charity, I Matter. And from the charity, uh, we're trying to use, raise money to help veterans, especially homeless veterans in any way possible, uh, to be able to speak to, mentor, inspire uh, young people, and just basically promote uh, diversity and ways of getting our diversity to work for all of us. That's pretty much what I'm trying to do. Right. So in the next section, uh, I want to really talk about how uh, you and your bride have put together this organization. You're raising money. Um, and, and I really want to, you know, we've talked about the song and, and, and what it's about, and, and I love that. But I really want to talk about, because um, the focus, I mean, obviously, there's a lot to talk about here, but the mm -hmm. focus seems to be around vets, and that's cool. Uh, I want to talk about why vets and why that's such an important thing and why we need to pay much more attention to that. Sure. Um, uh, sure. Because I, I, I think there's a I also do some stuff around vets and I just think it's, and by the way, I, um, people are always fascinated by this because um, I'm a conscientious objector. If there was a war, I will go to jail. 
I'm against mm -hmm. war and I support vets. And again, yeah. that's another example of two things can come together that you don't think match, right? Yeah. So we'll come back in, in our final part of this delicious episode with my fabulous guest, Joseph Wooten, who is a uh, nominate, Grammy nominated artist. He's an author, he's a speaker, he's all kinds of great things. Uh, his book is It All Matters. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's about the, the words that he lives by and, and the things that he's learned along the way here. It's about, we're gonna talk about his organization. We've talked about the song. And now we wanna talk about, in the next section, we're gonna talk about the impact and why it's important for, for us to bring a, a, just a greater awareness to the vets uh, uh, and particularly to homeless vets. Again, you do matter. So please remember that. You really do, and so does everybody else. So maybe we need to just put a little bit more attention on that. We're going to be back with our final part of this delicious conversation with Joseph Wooten. So till the next show, stay curious, my friends. Stay curious.